Oh Lord, you are worthy of all our praise. Lord, we so often fall so far short in, in our walk and, and uh, the praise that we give to you. Uh, Lord, as we just sang, childlike faith. Lord, we want that. We, wanna, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've placed on our life. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can just gather together and, and lift up your name in praise. Lord, as we spend the next time here together now in studying your word, I, I just pray that this is a special intimate time with you as we, as we look into your word and, and ask that, Lord, you just reveal truth to us, how we can apply it to our daily lives. Bless our time now, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, good evening. If you would take out your Bibles and open them up with me to Genesis chapter 34. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in our study here in Genesis. We'll pick up where we left off there. Genesis 34. We come to a very, very difficult to read and difficult to understand chapter uh, in this story of Jacob and, and his, uh, his family. There's a lot of lessons to learn in it, however, so let's, uh, let's take a look. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and he lay with her by force. Now Dinah, if you'll remember is the first daughter that is born to Jacob, the first one listed anyway, and we believe it's the first daughter that was born to him, born to Leah, the youngest recorded child that is there. Um, at this point, she is at least a teenager, which would mean that her older brothers are at least in their early 20s, which would indicate that they have been here in this land of Shechem, where we left off chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, They've been here approximately 10 years when this, this instance takes place. Uh, the king of the land, his son, his name is Shechem. That's, he named the land or the, the town after his son. And he sees Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, visiting some friends in town. And he takes her and rapes her. And we see here as it goes on, though, verse 3, he said, He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and said, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Word travels quickly in this community. Um, he keeps Dinah with him at, at the home that he has there in town. Word travels out to Jacob that this has occurred. He's shocked. He's, he's mortified. He doesn't do any action, however. He waits until his sons come in. It says, verse 7, now the sons, or I'm sorry, verse 6, then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because, what, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be. Obviously, they are tremendously grieved by this and angered by this. Their younger sister has been violated this way. Now, as we're going to see here, 
Hamor, the father of Shechem, and Shechem, they go on as though this was no big deal. And unfortunately, in Cana at the time, it really wasn't. This was, you saw something that you wanted, you went and you took it. Sexual sin was very prominent in the time. However, marriage was still arranged back then. Dads would get together and arrange the marriage. So Hamer's coming out and saying, hey, no big deal. My son wants to marry your daughter. Let's work out the arrangement. Verse 8 says, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and make our da- take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, which... Again, seems kind of silly at this point, but they must think that there's no big deal with this. If I find favor in your sight, I violated your daughter, but if I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according to what you say, say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. Now, verse 13 says, But Jacob's sons answered Shechem, which starts to reveal a major problem that's unfolding here. Jacob doesn't answer. And as we look through this, it would almost appear as though Jacob's completely out of the equation. As though once the sons got there, he stepped back, abdicating his responsibility as the father, as the leader, and leaving it in in the hands of his 20-something-year-old sons. We don't know that for certain because it doesn't tell us that, but as we see the narrative unfold... There certainly seems to be Jacob completely absent from the situation. But Jacob's son answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised. Here I see the first step into the, the proof that Jacob's not there, they totally corrupt the holy meaning of circumcision that God had placed with, the, the, with Abraham to be passed on through their descendants, that they were to be separated from others, and this would be a sign that they belong to God. And they're going to use this in the trickery and deceit to get revenge for their, for their sister. That tells me Jacob is not there. And if he's there, he's again totally missing and abdicating his responsibility. But it goes on in verse 16. It says, Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. Again, I got to say, if Jacob was there, he would say, absolutely not. There is no way. This, we, we will not mingle together with, with them. So in my, in my opinion, as we're looking through this, Jacob is not involved in this at all. But if you will listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters, I'm sorry, if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. And behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one of their people. 
Let every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Can you imagine the shock? (laughs) Say what? Repeat? (laughs) They go into it, however, verse 23 says, Will not their livestock and their property and all of their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. Compelling them now through greed. Understand this is going to be rather uncomfortable. It doesn't seem like a really good proposition right up front. But listen, they're very rich. They're wealthy. You've seen all of the stuff that they have out there. That'll all become ours as we intermarry with them. They think about it. Verse 24, all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of the city. Verse 25, now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Pretty amazingly tragic story. Started out with a horrific deed being done to their sister, but then through deception and these acts, they end up murdering every male in the city and taking all of the plunder with them as they left. Verse 30 says, Then when Jacob heard this, that when Jacob heard about what had happened, said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me, an odi- making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Instantly silencing Jacob in his accusation against them, basically saying, well, Dad, what did you do? How did you handle this? What a tragedy. What a tragic situation. One thing that started horrifically bad got horrifically worse. Instead of a witness of truth and love, now they're associated with deception and cruelty. They murder and pillage instead of following up with holiness and mercy. Now, I would love to say that this is an isolated incident in the history of God's people, but unfortunately, as we look at even post-Jesus time, Christians, the the Crusades, in the name of Jesus, going out and, and doing horrific deeds. What a tragic thing. But it should have never been in this situation in the first place. They should have never been here. If you'll remember, if you'll go back to chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this as we closed up our study. After Jacob had parted ways with his brother Esau, it tells us in verse 18, it says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Aram and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. 
He pitched his tent, just like we talked about then, back what, like with Lot, when he pitched his tent towards Sodom, a wicked, idolatrous city. They knew this. They knew the, the customs of the area and the Canaanites. That's why they went out of the land to find wives for their, their sons. They knew the ways of the people there. Yet instead of continuing on all the way back home, they stop here. And instead of stopping temporarily, he purchases land. Why I make a point of this is it should have never ended up in this situation. Jacob has no one to blame in this but himself. If, if we are, as parents, if we as, as families today, pitch our tents towards the world, allowing our families to be completely intermixed in the world and all of the ways of the world, we can't, ex- we can't, we can't expect different, or different things from our children if they turn out to be like the world. If we allow them to watch all of the same things as the world and talk the same ways as the world, to dress the way as the world dresses, we can't expect them to come out differently than the world does. I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot from my children. I should expect it from my children. But I also hear it from other parents. It's not really that big a deal. It is. It really is a huge deal. We have to be different. Yes, we have to live amongst this. We need to be in the world, but we can't be of the world. We, we have to be different. We have to, uh, we have to shelter our children is probably the wrong way to say that, but we need to protect them. We need to protect them. This isn't legalism. This is just common sense. This is wisdom. We need to protect our children from what's around us. Even if we do, however, we are going to face situations. We are going to face trials and difficulties. We are going to face tragedies in the world around us. When we face problems and we face persecution, we need to handle it differently again than the world does. What, what the, the sons of Jacob did in retaliation to what happened to Dinah, their sister, is what we would expect, again, the world to react to. We would expect the world to do that, the, the dirty, hairy mentality or the, the die-harder mentality. If somebody hits you hard, you hit them twice as hard. Back. You, you get revenge. You go after them. But we have a different example. If you would, if you would turn with me to, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What happened here is the sons got angry. They got mad and they, there is a righteous anger. It's not a sin to be angry, but there is ang- sin that follows anger if we allow the devil to get a foothold in it. Proverbs 14, 12, we talked about this this weekend. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There are many things that we can say in our lives when things happen to us to justify our actions according to the world around us. But again, those ways lead to death. Those ways lead to more problems. That's exactly what happened here. They could justify themselves. There was a way that seemed right to them, but in the end, it ended in a huge amount of death and more and more problems. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 14. It says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jesus tells us that we are to love and pray for our enemies, not seek to get revenge against them. 
Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Again, just like the the Proverbs author said. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil done to, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. I have that underscored in my Bible and in the margins I, I have, there are no exceptions and no exclusions. Never repay back evil for evil to anyone, regardless of the situation. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Bottom line, if you'll notice one glaring exclusion in chapter 34 that we just went through, The name of God is not mentioned once. The entire chapter. We finish up chapter 33. It says, Then he erected there an altar and called it El Aroy Israel, which means the God of Israel. He moved in. They set up up camp there and they erected an altar. But ten years later, when tragedy strikes, they don't seek the Lord in it. They don't go to the Lord whatsoever. And I make, I make a point of that because oftentimes one of the biggest deceptions that is out there when we are dealing with the world is I will make an impact on them. They won't bother me. So I will go ahead and I'll, I'll infiltrate, if you would. I'll go, I'm okay to go to the bar scene and hang out there because, because I, I'm, I, have, I have Jesus now, so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to bring Jesus to the bar. And before you know it, it starts to rub off on you the other direction. I have to tell you, that happened with me in my workplace a long, quite a while ago. I, was, I ended up leaving an employer partly because I could feel it was affecting me more than I was affecting it. We have to be so careful of that. We can think that we can go out in pride and think that we have this whole thing handled. But here's a perfect example of how that totally backfires. And within a short period of time, there was even an altar erected outside of the house. But they didn't go there. They, they went and they, they reacted as the world around them would have. Tragic situation. But one of the great things I love about a chapter like 34 is it's followed by a chapter 35. <laughs> you would think that after this happening, and again, Jacob completely abdicating his responsibility. Here's the father figure. Here's the patriarch completely losing all, all credibility within his family and now around the nation. His sons doing this unspeakable thing in the name of God, by the way. Again, remember, they used God's sacred thing of circumcision as part of their ploy. God says, starts out this, I love this, verse, chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. Jacob, you don't belong here. Get up and get moving. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
Here we see God's incredible grace, not judgment. Not judgment coming down condemning Jacob, but grace lifting him up. Romans 5.20 tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Literally, it says that grace abounds beyond measure where sin abounds. If you read all of Romans 5 and 6, that does certainly is not a license for us to go out and sin more. Paul says, absolutely not. But understand this, Christian, when we do sin, grace abounds. And I love this. As it goes on, verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, as, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Jacob here, verse 2, responds to God's grace that's outlined in verse 1. Not the other way around. Jacob didn't have to earn God's grace. Again, we talk about this so often. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor. This is a response to God's grace. Now, I think it's interesting as we look at these verses that this entire family, Jacob included, had been in this world system so long they didn't even realize how bad they stunk. I, I went to college in, uh, in Iowa. Now, I'm from Colorado, got recruited to go out and play basketball, small college in Iowa, and one of my good friends that was on the basketball team with me, he was from a farm in Iowa, grew up on a farm, and one weekend, he said, hey, why don't you come home with me and meet my family and the whole thing? So I went home, and it was, it was a pig farm out in the middle of Iowa. Now, if any of you have ever been on a pig farm, it doesn't smell real good. Everything smells really, really bad, including the water. I am taking a shower and the water stinks. And I mean, it was just, you get a glass, I couldn't drink water the whole weekend because it just, it just smelled horrible. And I said to my friend, and I was really embarrassed afterwards, and he was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, he grew up in it. He didn't even smell it anymore. It's just, that's just the way it is. You know, it's, it's and you're, you're around it so long, it doesn't even bother you. Now, for all of you who are from Iowa, I am not comparing Iowa to sin. I love the Hawkeye State. I'm just making an illustration. You're around it long enough, you don't even realize it's there. Here's, here's Jacob's family. They, they had, they, the household was full of idols and gold and these types of things. And Jacob realizes as God is calling him to this place again, calling him back to Bethel, where God first revealed himself to him, that I, we got to clean this up. We have to get rid of all of the idols. We have to change our garments. Revival has to happen in the household right here. Turn with me real quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 17. It says, so, I, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, 
have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, having been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. We're to put off the garments, the old garments of the flesh, put on the new garments of righteousness, just as they did here. Revival within the family. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us so that we can run with endurance the race before us. Not doing this, keeps us from getting to Bethel. Keeps us to getting to where we need to be in our relationship with God. Now, I'm going to draw a couple of conclusions here that aren't outlined for us in the text, but I want to illustrate a point. If you look at a map, where they were, Shechem, is directly north of Hebron, which is where Jacob grew up, where Jacob left from, where his father Isaac was still, and his mother, directly south of them. In between there was Bethel. Now, again, I'm going to assume something here, and I'll explain a couple of things later as to why I'm going to assume this, other than they were there for 10 years. They were in Shechem for 10 years. Jacob had been gone for 20 years prior to that. Being that close to home, would you assume that he probably went home a couple of times to see his mom and his dad? I'm, I would assume so. Probably even met Esau there. It's not recorded for us, so I'm not going to stand on that doctrinally. But he's gone for 20 years. He loved his parents. He loved his mother. Wanted to, I'm sure wanted to get home and see them. So I'm going to assume that he went there. But based on God telling him to go to Bethel, it seems like he avoided Bethel on the way. And oftentimes, sin can do that in our lives. It will keep us from getting into God's word because we know what's there. We know what we're going to find. We know what we're going to be confronted with when we get there. God's, God's going to say, I need you to deal with this sin in your life. And, and I believe just illustrating that, that, that Jacob perhaps avoided Bethel because he knew some of the things that were going on in his household maybe didn't want to deal with them. And, and God made him, you know, it, it's be uncomfortable to get there. Well, God made situations so uncomfortable, he's going to go there now. We need to take care of the things that keep us from those Bethel places in our lives, in that. The longer we stay away from it, the more comfortable we get with the sin in our life. And we need to deal with that. We need to deal with it. How do we deal with it? the same way Jacob and his family did. They buried it under the tree. And the tree where we bury ours is at the cross. We simply go to the cross. There's nothing more than we need to do other than to take these idols, to take these things that are, that are disrupting our relationship with God in the perfect sense that it can be, take it and put it at the foot of the cross. It's simply that. It's simply that. And we too then can have this restored relationship as Jacob did with God. Now as it continues our story, verse 5, 
It says, as they journeyed, there was great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God protects them. They were far outnumbered, outgunned everywhere, but God protected them. It's a shame. It would have been better another way if, as they were going, they were saying, man, there's something different about you guys. What is it? And they could share the love of God. And as we've talked so many times, God, God protects us. God has grace towards us. God is merciful towards us. But man, there's so many things that happen in our lives that can disrupt our witness. But God did protect them. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under, uh, below Bethel under the oak. It was called Elon Bakuth. Now here is another reason why I would, I'm just saying that I believe that this happened. Here, Deborah is Rebekah's nurse. This tells me that this is the, like the nanny Jacob had growing up. One of the trips, I believe, that when Jacob went back to visit mom and dad, Rebecca, his mom, died, and he brings back his Deborah, the nurse, with him. Again, I'm not going to stand on that doctrinally, but just another thing that as I was reading through and reading some commentaries, it all seems to line up and make sense. Well, this woman that he loved, that helped raise him, is, has, has now died, and so they bury her there. Verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who nourishes, the God who provides. I am the God who is everything that you need. God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. He changes his name. Again, officially here again. He, he's done it before. He's reiterating it here. Your name will be called Israel. I'm changing your name, Jacob, Israel. Now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. The same is true with us. We have been called by a new name as Christians. And we need to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. I, uh, I saw this quote today. It says, The strongest incentive to holy living is the comprehension of our holy calling. If we understand what it is that we've been called in Christ, the name that we have, we would, it would be our deepest desire as it should be to walk in a manner worthy. 1 Peter 2, 9-12 through 12, says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We need to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in that place, where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the house where God had spoken with him Bethel, or house of God. Then he journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go for, to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. 
When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Anoi, which means the son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin. Jacob renames him after Rachel dies. And this Benjamin means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Here now, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, uh, has, has an affair with his, one of his concubines, Bilhah, the, the mother of two of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. It's only mentioned here in verse 22, but um, it, it's going to come back to when, when, uh, when Jacob hands out the blessings to his children. He never forgets this. Uh, verse 21 continues, 22 continues, Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the, are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We don't hear anything about Isaac from the time that 30 years earlier when he couldn't see, he was blind, and, and, his, and Jacob came in and, and got the birthright, as we talked about. We don't hear anything more about him until we get to this point where his family's gathered together with him, and he dies at the age of 180. Now, chapter 36, we're not going to read through it because I don't want to embarrass myself trying to pronounce all of the names, but it's, it's the lineage of Esau, his generations that follow him. The entire chapter is devoted to that. A couple of things, however, that I would like to point out um, as we go, as we just cover this, and I would recommend if you, at, at, your, at your time, and there's even some great commentaries on this that go into some great detail, looking into some more things with the, the genealogies of it, but we're not going to go through it verse by verse. Um, it says now, verse, verse 1 does say, Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau became the father of the Edomites, who is going to be a, a huge thorn in the side, enemies of the Israelites in future generations. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Now we talked about this back in Genesis chapter 26. Esau went out and got Canaanite women for wives, two of them. This greatly displeased Isaac and Rebekah, because they, 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 he was told that they weren't, he wasn't supposed to do that. This was a direct violation of what they told him not to do. He did it anyway. However, it's, it, if we look at this, and if you compare the names of the, the wives that are recorded for us in chapter 36 with the, the names recorded in tw Genesis 26 and 28, it seems to indicate that Esau changed their names. 
almost as you would think as in, like an effort to try to cover up what he had done. If he changed their names, perhaps it wouldn't be so bad. Sin is sin regardless of what we call it. And we see so much of that, again, in the community and the world that we live in around us, where adultery is, is called an affair, where abortion is called choice, where sodomy is called gay. Sin is sin, no matter what we call it. And we can look around in the world around us and, and find instances like this, but we have to, again, guard our hearts so carefully because we can do the same thing, softening sin and, and excusing sin in our own lives. Regardless of what Esau did to try to cover up his sin, he never repented of it. And that's the only true way that we can deal with sin, is repenting of it. Repenting of it. The Bible tells us when we do that, our sin is cleansed. It's washed away. Well, if we read through this, the 43 verses of chapter 36, we can see that the Edomites became very prosperous, very powerful. Verse 31 even tells us, now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before there were any kings reigning over the sons of Israel. They had kings, and they were set up as, as, as little nations long before Israel was ever settled. You can look at these types of things, and the world would say, well, look, po prosperity, power. Psalm 73, the psalmist, when he wrote that, he says, I looked around, and I nearly stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the world around me. It's easy to do. However, Psalm 73 continues on, and it says, But then I went to the sanctuary of the Lord, and when I was there, I saw their end. I know what's lying ahead of them. I know what lies ahead of the world that, that is rejecting God, that is living for themselves. I see their end, and I know my end because I've trusted in God. My end is a eternity with Him. Edom today is no longer. Even by the time of Jesus, Edom had long disappeared by then. An empty place. Romans 8, if you want to turn there, we'll finish with this. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 6 says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Again, the world can be very deceptive. It, it, can, it can convince us that we have certain rights, that we have certain responsibilities to react in a certain way, that we can go out and get, get our own revenge, that we can do things that we saw end in such tragedy in the stories that we've seen today. And, and the, the life of Esau, never repenting, continually trying to cover up. Yet if we, if we turn to the Lord, and again, instead of living as the world around us lives, we, we can't 
walk away from the world. We are, we are here. We are called to be here. But this is not our home. This is not our home. Keeping our focus on our home eternally. That is where we find true joy, true happiness. And in the Lord, we can have the strength to face anything that does come our way. Let's pray, and then we'll sing one last closing song together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, as, as we discussed, this is a difficult section to read through. But Lord, I thank you for including it in your word, for not, not avoiding a difficult chapter in the history of your people. Because Lord, we all go through difficult chapters in our lives. Lord, let us learn from this. Let us learn that if we allow sin in our life, if we get too close to the world, if we make concessions to the world around us, Lord, it leads us away from you. Lord, our, our heart can become hardened without our even knowing it. We can become callous to sin in our life. Lord, I pray that each one of us right here, right now, would just open up before you and allow you to review us. Lord, search us. Reveal to us if there is anything in us that is not pleasing to you. Any sin in our life that is, that is disrupting that perfect communion, relationship with you. And Lord, we deal with that right now. We repent of that. We bring it and we bury it at the cross, knowing that, that you, shedding your blood on that cross, paid the entire penalty for that sin. We don't need to carry the burden of it around. We need to simply lay it down before you. And Lord, we're, we're blessed to see how your grace far exceeds our sin. Lord, that your grace is abundant how you poured your grace and your mercy and your love out on Jacob and his family, even after such a horrific chapter, we see your love manifest. Lord, let us live in a manner and walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've placed on us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let's, let's sing one more song together before we, we leave tonight. Let's go ahead and stand. Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold, pure gold. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within, and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within.
cleanse me from my sin deep within refiner's fire my heart's one desire is to be God bless you. Have a wonderful evening, and we'll hope to see you out here this weekend as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. God bless you.